Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Roundup podcast presented by Coinbits. We bring Bitcoin news, hot topics of conversation, and deep dives into a variety of Bitcoin topics to you weekly. We are Coinbits, a Bitcoin financial services company. Check us out at coinbits.app. This recording is for informational purposes only. No investment or legal or any other advice should be drawn from this content. And as always, consult an advisor before making any legal or financial decisions. We are Coinbits. We are a Bitcoin-only financial services company. We're based in the United States, and we allow you to buy and sell Bitcoin, manage Bitcoin, meet your Bitcoin goals by using it as a savings vehicle. Our values are really important to us, and we think about Bitcoin not as a trading vehicle or as some way that you can get rich quick, but something that can allow you to prepare for the future, whatever that future may hold. Bitcoin is a protocol that is incredibly resilient, has shown itself to be resilient and and help lift people up and give people really a sense of control and sovereignty and meaning. And we really wanted to, we felt that deeply uh, for ourselves and we wanted to bring that to as many people as we could. And that's what gets us up out of bed every day is thinking about how Bitcoin is eventually going to impact the world so positively, even in a way that it, we can't even we can't even anticipate the, the scale of that yet. And so this the excitement of that and thinking about the future as an exciting place instead of a place full of doom and gloom, but someplace where humanity can really thrive because the values of Bitcoin allow people to communicate um, and trade and conduct commerce and, you know, bring themselves and what they have to offer to this world and to their communities and trade that for hard money. So values are important and Coinbits really um, embodies those values. We, we aspire to do so anyway. Um, we are a Bitcoin first neobank. That is who we are becoming. Um, you know, today when you link your external accounts, you already get kind of a, a, a very like low resolution bird's eye view of your spending and you're able to kind of track that and then decide whether you're spending enough on Bitcoin or, or you or you are spending the right amount on kind of your life needs outside of Bitcoin. And so um, people already love us for that. We're expanding that offering as we go forward. And we're adding several very important um, features for saving in Bitcoin. Um, one of them that I, I'd like to highlight is called Bitcoin IRA. So an IRA is a retirement account where when you put assets in that account and um, and they appreciate in value, you when you eventually take them out because you're ready to retire, they don't incur a capital gains tax. So that's always been an incredibly important way to save for retirement, um, even if, you know, traditional investing. Um, any financial advisor, even though we're not that, would tell you that um, having a tax-advantaged retirement account is absolutely a good idea. When you add the thesis around Bitcoin to that equation, though, and you say that the, the upside potential of Bitcoin is to appreciate many hundreds of times, um, then the importance of avoiding that tax liability decades hence is incredibly important. And so a Bitcoin IRA is an absolutely key part, um, we believe, of any retirement plan. Now, we're not financial advisors and we can't tell you that Bitcoin is for you. But what we can tell you is that retirement accounts are something that we believe in um, and that Bitcoin is an asset that we believe in. And when you combine those two things, it's incredibly powerful. So having said all that, I just want to remind you one last time, um, none of this is financial advice for you personally. 
Um, you have to decide for yourself whether Bitcoin is right for you. And now I will hand it over to David to introduce our guest. Thanks, Dave. So this Friday, we're very excited, and, and I'm personally very excited to be speaking with Andrew Howard from Bitcoin Reserve, where he leads business development. And um, I could give an overview of Bitcoin Reserve, but actually, Andrew, do you mind just speaking to really, you know, give an overview of what your, your company does and how it's, how it's unique? Yeah, for sure. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Cool. We have a lot of similarities with CoinBits, uh, basically just in different regions. So we are a Bitcoin-only company uh, founded in 2018, and we serve clients globally. We help people buy any amount of Bitcoin. So if somebody wants to buy 100 euro, $100 worth of Bitcoin with us, they can do that. If they want to buy 100 million euro or dollars worth of Bitcoin, they can do that too. So... Um, and yeah, we've been Bitcoin only since day one. We're non-custodial, so we literally do not even give our clients the option to keep their Bitcoin with us. We don't want to live in a world where, you know, exchanges are basically becoming banks. We don't want that. So, um, yeah, we just try and just like CoinBits, we, we value the principles of Bitcoin and want to enable that in the world. So it's basically what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Actually, before we get, uh, you know, started on, on kind of your background, Andrew, I'm, I'm very curious, like, what's the, do you ever get pushback from clients on like, uh, the, the fact that you guys are non-custodial? Because um, I know at least in the, at least in the US, like, self-custody is awesome. But a lot of people, you know, it, when they're on their like Bitcoin journey, their, their first step usually is a like a custodial platform for better or worse. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about like, you know, your experience basically helping people buy Bitcoin in a like just just without giving them that custodial option. Yeah, it's a good question. Frankly, we, we would probably have more business <clears throat> if we gave people the option to use us as a bank pretty much. Right. You look at. Binance and Coinbase and all these exchanges, and they've had a ton of uh, Bitcoin leave over the last week or so. Um, but uh, people like convenience, and that's very true. But the problem is convenience is not always the safest option, even if it does seem like it at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it's really not the way that I, I view it as learning how to hold your own keys. It's not as complicated as some people made it out to be. It's not like uh, like how Machinsky uh, made it seem. You know, he's antagonizing Bitcoiners for encouraging self-custody. It's the way I see it, it's like a learning curve. You know, people didn't know how to use computers before. People didn't know how to drive cars before. There are tons of very profound technologies which have impacted the way human beings interact in a very major way. And obviously, you're going to have to learn how to use those technologies. And keeping 12 words safe, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to uh, to do that. And there are plenty of Bitcoin consulting companies popping up, teaching people how to have best practices with self-custody. So, uh, yeah, I think people in the West especially have, have not experienced um, 
tyranny over their finances as much as people in different parts of the world. And that's likely why we as people in the West uh, trust exchanges more. It's basically naivety. You know what? Can I just, can I just break in? I want to second that thought and, and just open up another thought I just had as you were talking, which is um, that there is a narrative that custody is difficult, that is in some ways can be interpreted as an attack on Bitcoin. Um, I think that we need, as Bitcoiners, we need to cut that off at the pass. Custody is not complicated. Um, you know, um, because people are all too willing to just be like, ah, oh, it's too complicated. Um, I saw an interesting tweet go by last night talking about how flying cars were invented in the early 20th century. It's called an airplane. Like, teenagers can fly them, they fit in a garage, they can take off on a residential street, right? But, like, we were kind of kind of told, or over time, just like, we were, we were, we were led to believe that this is too complicated, no one can do it. Um, now, I know that that's not the perfect argument or metaphor because there's like, you know, issues around like when there's an airplane crash, it falls out of the sky and onto somebody's house and so on. I get that. But I just kind of, I, you know, it just made me think and be like, wow, like, you know, there's so many things that we assume are too complicated for people to handle. But um, that is that's an attack because, you know, it's just like you can't do it. Like, let us do it. Um, and, and I don't know what you think about that. And it's just like a thought I had. Yeah, if, if I could jump in, actually, this, uh, Dave, this reminds me a lot of the, to draw like a, a fiat parallel, this reminds me a lot of the debates around FDIC insurance. And to, to give some like historical context, before FDIC insurance, which was a part of the New Deal under FDR, um, banks, if you look at like an old newspaper, banks would actually post like how much uh, deposits they had and like what their like their capital was and people or maybe not like individual people, but the market would like basically evaluate the, the solvency of those banks. So there was kind of like a market check on banks. But today that concept of like people um, evaluating the strength of their own banks is just totally foreign. It's like, oh no, we we people couldn't possibly do that. Uh, like the market couldn't do that. So we need to have like unlimited backstops on on banks. And and what that's done is since the establishment of the FDIC, it's made the system actually more risky because nobody's checking on banks. People assume that they're like going to get bailed out, and it's made the system a lot more fragile. And so it kind of I, I really see that as like a, a parallel of basically just like assuming that people can't do it on their own. They can't like learn, they can't do that. And whether it's like convenience or, or something else, it, it really like um, inhibits the, you know, people from growth, basically like self growth. Yeah, it's true. We had a uh, Peter St. Ange, professor Peter St. Ange on our podcast a few months ago and he brought up, Basically the same point that banks, uh, it, it was not always like this hookers and blow mentality for lack of a better term. Um, bankers used to be very responsible older men who uh, had incentives to make responsible decisions. And if one bank was, was uh, giving out too many bad loans or 
uh, you know, had, had some kind of issue, the government wouldn't go and rescue that bank uh, under the guise of protecting people. The bank would just go under and it would get acquired by a bank that was better and more responsible and more moral. And uh, we just don't have that anymore through things like the FDIC, like you mentioned, David. Um, it's, it's basically just central planning and anytime central planning happens in an economy, you're going to have bad things happen and human beings, uh, plan for their lives a lot better than any small group of people planning for hundreds of millions of people. And that's pretty obvious fact that I think a lot of individuals can agree on. And that's what we're finally moving into now with, uh, with Bitcoin. So yeah, totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And um, really, I guess, like you said, Bitcoin, but self-custody, right? Um, so getting into finally getting to your background a little bit, Andrew, uh, would love it if you shared more about like what led you to Bitcoin Reserve, your highlights so far working at a Bitcoin only company for the like three years. I mean, that's that's a, that's that, you know, the space hasn't been around so long. So like three years at a, at a Bitcoin only, that's. That's solid experience. Yeah, appreciate that. And especially three years ago, being a Bitcoin-only company was a lot different than it is now. Because <laughs> three years ago, if you were to tell people you're Bitcoin-only, there, there were a lot less Bitcoin maximalists at that time. It wasn't that long ago, right? But uh, that was before we had all of this all of these crashes with all these different crypto shitcoin companies and the idea of being Bitcoin only was foreign to a lot of people. But I think a lot of people are starting to really understand that uh, Bitcoin is really the only, as Adam Batch says, it's, it's the only investable crypto asset. So, um, but uh, yeah, so you were asking basically about how I got involved in Bitcoin to start off. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just touching off that, like, right. I remember, um, really like this split in rhetoric between crypto and Bitcoin. That was like 2021, right? I mean, it's existed for a long time, right? I mean, since, uh, the early days of Vitalik Buterin really starting Ethereum. <clears throat> but um, I think it, it became much more popularized in 2020, 2021, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, but feel free to, to share your background, how you got to Bitcoin Reserve, you know, your experience there. Yeah, so I actually got involved in Bitcoin first uh, in the Marine Corps, active duty in the Marine Corps. The first time I bought Bitcoin was in the Marine Corps barracks, <laughs> and uh, it was off of Coinbase. Um, I had started to really get into the libertarian school of thought. I read End the Fed by Ron Paul. I read The Creature from Jekyll Island. I read War is a Ratchet by Smedley Butler. He was actually former Major General uh, of the Marine Corps, who got out of the Marine Corps and started writing an anti-war book and touring across America, talking about how all these wars are against the interests of Americans. And they uh, conveniently, you know, don't teach you about him in Marine Corps boot camp, right? Kind of funny there. But um, so, yeah, I had never I had never put the connection together between uh, central banking and war. And that... <clears throat> 
correlation was a huge light bulb that went off in my head. Basically, growing up in a country where <laughs> we're always at war <clears throat> and we're, we're basically the world police uh, to realizing, wow, you know, the only way this is even possible is because the government has a monopoly on money and they can fund whatever war they want without the consent of the people. Going to war should... It's, it's funny because in the United States, you're taught that war is good for the economy, which is so absolutely not true. War is horrible for the economy. You don't do anything productive in war. You're, 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 if you make bombs and tanks and all those things, it's really not a productive thing to create. It's a, it's a destructive thing to create. It's very beneficial for corporations that get contracts with the government to create all of those uniforms and tanks and airplanes and things like that. But in general, for the average American, it's not good for the economy. So, um, yeah, found out about Bitcoin along that process. And I would say within the next few days after I discovered what this thing was, I just bought some. Um, I didn't even... Could I ask how? Could I ask how you bought it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was through Coinbase, actually. Yeah, through Coinbase. So, yep. You know, that's what everybody else was using that I knew in the Marine Corps. Everybody was using Coinbase, so that's what I went with. I have since not used Coinbase for obvious reasons, but uh, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah the uh, the whole like. Uh, the notion that war is good for the economy. It's really like uh, like the broken window fallacy, right? Where like a window gets broken and that, that like fallacy that it's like, it's actually good for the economy because it creates jobs because the, you have the guy that like fixes the window. And that's really, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, but you know, we're going to war and we're causing destruction, but like we're creating jobs for like, the contractors and, the, and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate the the level of just like basic economic illiteracy that permeates the U.S. Yeah, that's what happens when the government uh, <clears throat> quotes quote educates their children. And if war was so good for the economy, then why isn't the U.S. economy uh, better than it was before the Iraq War? How does that make sense? Big thing people don't realize too is you know World War Two. The United States got so, so beneficially uh, planted during that time period with, as you guys know, with the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. Uh, all of, you know, 44 countries, I believe it was, uh, went up in, I think it was Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, right? And they all made a uh, mutual agreement to use the United States dollar as the world reserve currency. So... <clears throat> the fact that we're simply taught in school that war is good for the economy and they leave that part out, how all of these powerful nations uh, agreed at that time to use the dollar as the world reserve currency, obviously that's that's going to make a country tremendously powerful. So, yeah, I think that's that's an important consideration. Yeah, definitely. It was actually at a uh, resort in New Hampshire. You're right. And you can still go there. It's like a, it's a nice hotel. <laughs> There's, it has like a golf course and everything. It's, it's uh, really pretty. Um, and you can like, you can stay in the room that all those people stayed in. I would not stay in the Canes room. You know, that's like bad vibes, right? 
you don't want to get like haunted or something. Um, But yeah. And so that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I do want to ask like, what's your, what's your experience been operating an international Bitcoin company as an American, right? Like, has it, has it changed? Cause you said you, you got into Bitcoin in the Marine Corps. How has your experience been like, you know, working with Bitcoin and working with Bitcoin internationally, like, has it changed your perspective? I know you said earlier that like uh, people in the West are a little bit more, I mean, basically coddled, right? Um, How is, how's the kind of international view of Bitcoin shaped how you think about it? It's very interesting to see how many different people have different valuations of Bitcoin. Uh, People in the West, we, we use Bitcoin as an investment, generally speaking, and and that's fine. Uh, the United States is one of the biggest adopters of, of Bitcoin, and that's a good thing. But you talk to people in Latin America, and they have lived through hyperinflation. They understand it's a lot easier to orange pill a Latin American than it is an American. Um I, I can at least say for, for clients in Mexico, they really get it because, you know, I, I've lived in Mexico the last three years and the people here fully understand, uh, generally understand the problem with money because they had bad hyperinflation in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's interesting to see how, how different people think Bitcoin is valuable for different reasons. Um I, I wish I could say who the exact customers we have are, but it's it's pretty it's pretty fascinating to see uh, various types of people get involved in Bitcoin. Intelligent, smart, wealthy people, uh, you know, working at big corporations that you would you would recognize, or wealthy families that you'd recognize. It's um, it's given me a very different perspective on on Bitcoin and it makes me bullish on Bitcoin from a, a personal standpoint. Cause there's a lot of, I think one thing people don't realize is there's a lot of adoption happening that simply will not get publicized on Bitcoin magazine or CNN, MSNBC or anything like that. There are a lot of very wealthy, well-known people who buy Bitcoin, but have no incentive to publicize it. Um, why would they want to other than maybe some clout, maybe wanting to pump Bitcoin up more. But uh, if you think about it, if you're a really well-known person and you're very wealthy, if you announce that you bought Bitcoin, the price is probably going to go up over time and you have an incentive to buy Bitcoin at lower prices. So it's, it's interesting to see some of these dynamics play out from a, a personal standpoint. Hey, Andrew, you said, you said, I'm sure you can't speak to, detailed about who your um, clients are, but could you give us kind of a, a sketch of your typical customer or maybe the different types of customers that you have? A lot of different kinds. Uh, we've got customers all over the world, like I mentioned, in the Middle East, Asia Pacific region, all over Europe. Uh, we, we, we pretty much operate uh, globally, uh, again, outside of the US and Canada, but we've got anybody from Retail investors buying. Sorry about the the noise there. I hope it's not too loud. I live in Mexico and it's not a quiet country to live in, <laughs> so you may hear some opera. I'm outside, but uh, yeah, we've got customers from uh, buying a few hundred euro every first and fifteenth when they get paid to 
uh, large family offices and high net worth individuals that have been running businesses for decades, uh, a lot of different kinds um, of people. So interesting. So is there, if you're, if you're going to talk about demographics, would you say that it skews a little older, maybe like Gen X and Boomer? Do you, do you, do you find a, do you find young people have a different perspective? Do you, do you have to tailor your message for the different age groups? There's definitely more young people on Bitcoin and Bitcoin reserve than, than baby boomers. Uh, but there are a lot of baby boomers that I've talked to. It's really fun talking to them too, because, you know, you talk to a 70 year old about Bitcoin and they have a different perspective on it. Um, oftentimes what I've seen as well as the 70 year old getting in Bitcoin is entrepreneurial, um, and has a younger family member who's orange killed him. <laughs> that's, that's oftentimes the case. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, there, this whole idea of just because somebody's in an older generation, it's not like they're always going to think that Bitcoin doesn't have value because it's not physical or, or anything like that. Interesting. Hey, I, I noticed that Maher just, uh, Maher, you, you have, uh, I gave you speaking. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hey, Andrew, how you doing, man? Good, good to, good to, uh, good to speak with you. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious though, like when, when you look at your clients and your experience and, and we've seen this too at Coinbits, there's such a like diverse, um, set of demographics that, that, uh, you know, having a, having a sort of an affinity to Bitcoin or they get it or, or sort of they, they vibe with it, so to speak. But they're, they're so different, right? These people are so different from the outside looking in. I'm curious, you know, when you look at your clients, because you get a chance to really have like these very thoughtful conversations with them, given, given the, the type of business that you're in. Um, what common thread have you seen, you know, from the younger folks who are buying a couple hundred euros on a monthly basis versus the folks who are a bit more wealthy, um, buying larger chunks or maybe allocating some Bitcoin for their businesses? Like in the person, in, in the personality, in, in that, that human, is there a common thread that you've seen, you know, that, that sort of, you know, ties all these types of people with different backgrounds together? Uh, common thread. I would, it varies uh, a lot with a lot of different people. So for the younger folks, they often, I mean, they're, they're very heavy into DCA. Every first and 15th when they get paid, they're putting as much of it as they can into Bitcoin. That's pretty common for younger folks. For people in older generations, what we often see, I know you asked about common thread, but I, it's hard to say because there are many different reasons. But older folks, it's usually uh, somebody that is successful and retired or kind of semi-working, semi-running businesses, and they'll throw a certain percentage of their portfolio into it and then just let it sit there. They're not DCing into it. They're, they're just putting a certain percentage one time and they sit on it. So um, as far as a common thread, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I can think of any specific ones right now, yeah. uh, like a common link yeah. with everybody. I guess, I guess I can tell you, like, at least from the, kind of our experience at Coinbits, can you, we, you know, we talk to customers every day. Uh, but it's, it's um, 
you know, typically because we're in the retail business predominantly, you know, uh, we also get such a wide sort of set of people. And I think, and this is an ongoing exercise, but I, I think what I've found is that folks who are investing in Bitcoin, are saving in Bitcoin, they're, they have more of a low time preference than folks who are, you know, more high time preference. So I, I think at least that's one, one common thread that I've found. And it, typically it's either through more life experience or maybe, um, maybe more, more conservative values, perhaps, you know, growing up or, or as part of their families. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out, too. But I think that's at least that's what I've picked up on over the years. Not sure if you've, uh, you know, you've seen the same. Well, it's definitely a distrust for the government. Uh, there you I mean, go. <laughs> <laughs> that's def- that's that's an obvious common thread for sure. And uh, I do I do really appreciate what uh, I am not even remotely close to being a liberal, <laughs> but I I do appreciate the out- outreach <clears throat> to liberals. Liberals often talk about the the minimum wage issue, right? That's a big one we hear from liberals, and and frankly, they're pretty right. People can't survive on. Uh, people are having a hard time on salaries that they're getting paid right now and hourly wages. But a big uh, crossover we can have with those people is it's really not, you know, you you can do two things. One, you can keep trying to propose raising the minimum wage, which is only going to hurt businesses even even more, right? Because businesses have natural market incentives to retain good employees, and that entails paying them well. Uh, but they simply can't. So forcing them to pay them more is going to cause them to lay off employees. Um, but it's the money, right? So you look at uh, how much a dollar was worth in the 1960s. And of course, the minimum wage wasn't super high back then, but the money was worth a lot. And things were a lot cheaper. So, But uh, for sure that it's no coincidence that Satoshi said that Bitcoin is appealing to people in the libertarian crowd. And some of the earliest adopters of Bitcoin uh, were libertarians, conservatives, libertarians. And we're still kind of seeing that now. Um, It's a very substantial, it's a very big deal to separate the state from anything, really. The state's involved in so many aspects of our lives, but separating money from state, uh, you're not going to be able to give out free stuff, (laughs) really. Uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult, at the very least, to give out free stuff to people who aren't productive. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw I saw you were an ambassador for the Free Private Cities Foundation. That's a great group. Uh, we've talked with them before as well, along the lines of <laughs> really separating uh, stuff from the state. Yeah, I think that uh, <laughs> Free Cities is... It ties in very much so with this idea of the sovereign individual, how people will go where they're, they're treated best. And I really appreciate Free Cities because they are, they are creating uh, a, almost like a business for the services that a state provides. And so they're almost doing what, uh, what FedEx did to the post office in a way. <clears throat> they're providing free market solutions to something that was only previously provided by the state. Um, I think we're living in very interesting times. I don't, I don't think, especially people in older generations, they have more of an attachment to the nation state they grew up in. And I respect that. That's fine. I think it's good to have pride where you're from. 
But for better or for worse, and there's a little of both in there, we are heading into a vastly different world. And this whole concept of the nation state and, and previous roles of power is completely changing within our lifetimes. And, uh, and it really, it's because of the internet and the native currency of the internet. Uh, and it would not be possible without those two things. So, yeah, depending on where you're at, it should get really bad or really good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's interesting you bring up the internet. I um, That was honestly for me, like, uh, one of the one of the impediments, actually, when I was first getting into Bitcoin about, like, uh, what, because I, I think that, you know, having a more free market, liberty-minded background, um, I kind of saw the internet as a failure. Like, I think that a lot of people in the early earlier 2000s especially when social media was just getting off um the ground we're like oh cool we'll just have um you know totally sovereign like online communities and we'll just like create new worlds on the internet and stuff and then it it became this like big tech big tech like dystopia and i was like oh man what if you know can can bitcoin really be a different meaningful alternative in like a, a, a new way. And, and it's totally different. I just didn't understand that at the time. Um, but yeah, I think that we're definitely going to be living through some very, very interesting times. And I love that you brought up the sovereign individual and that's a, that's a great book that um, I'm, I'm actually like slowly reading because it's it's so good and i would recommend it to, to anybody on this space to read yeah for sure it's uh i think the general thesis is incontrovertible just the idea that uh you know major technology technologies uh profoundly impact the way human beings interact with each other it's pretty pretty fair statement to say so yeah, and like maybe the failure of the internet. So the I mean the failure of the internet to allow people to be free is because we were still using the fiat system to to you know do do transactions over the internet. So there was like this tie back to the previous system that was just like impossible to overcome. And Bitcoin might you know it be what allows the internet to flourish kind of in a separate domain. Um, Actually, I had uh, I wanted to go back to your experience in the military. We talked about how there seems to be um, this resonance with conservative values in Bitcoin, although not always. There's definitely people on the progressive side of things that value Bitcoin. Um, I don't know if it's just us, but like Amar was saying, like we, we do find that with users that our own users they too, they do skew that way. Although there is a mix, and that made me think about um, your military experience and how you said that everybody was using what was starting to get into Bitcoin while you were still in the military. And I'm curious, like, obviously there's also a mix of ideologies in the military, but I would imagine that excuse conservative. And I just wonder, like, I don't know if you're still in touch with those people or if you just could speak from memory, but like, how do, how do patriots, how do um, military families, how do those types of people who have more of a traditional American, I guess, Amer attachment to Americanism, uh, view Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, well, I've, I've observed that different branches have different uh, principles in some ways. 
the Marine Corps uh, has a lot of conservatives in it, specifically my job in the Marine Corps, which is reconnaissance Marine. You're not going to meet one liberal <laughs> in that job. You're just simply not going to. Um, and people were, frankly, it's pretty funny because people were buying Bitcoin at that time because they wanted to make money. They just thought about it as an investment. They basically had no idea what Bitcoin even was other than the fact that, wow, it's gone up so much, uh, you know, since this thing came out and I want to buy some and make some money. That's, that was basically the overwhelming consensus. It wasn't because they wanted to defund the state or anything like that. But that's actually a really great thing about Bitcoin is the, what it does is it takes greed. And when I say greed, I don't mean that in a bad way even. It's totally fine to want to make money, of course, and want to have good investments. That's very, that's what we need to be doing as human beings. Um, but Bitcoin takes that desire to just, I want to make money, and it turns it into something very good for the world that, uh, makes money valuable again, that separates money from state. And uh, that's, it's just pretty ironic, right? Because somebody in the military buying Bitcoin is inadvertently defunding the military industrial complex. It's pretty crazy and they don't even know what's happening. So uh, I guess that would be my answer in a nutshell. Um, I am definitely still in touch with a lot of guys that I was in the Marine Corps with and um, I think a lot of people are 20 years ago and all, all before that conservatives were a little more leaning on the side of supporting certain wars. But I think the tide has just completely changed now. And I think the absolute majority of conservatives do not want war to happen from what I've seen. I mean, you'll have the, the rhinos in Washington, DC, the Republicans in name only, supporting war, but uh, the average conservative I know does not support uh, the United States continuing to be the police of the world. And um, yeah, I, I guess that's what I would, what I would say. I mean, some, some people, very few people I've noticed have this feeling of Bitcoin, since it could replace the dollar, is anti-American. But that's actually just totally ridiculous because the dollar itself is anti-American. If you if you look at Article One, Section Ten of the U.S. Constitution, it's very clear. It says that our money should be either coined in gold or silver. And so, the dollars that everybody is carrying around today and using today and working so hard for. These are unconstitutional, and that's not even coming from me, right? Ron Paul wrote that, and then the Fed. Peter, Professor uh, Peter St. Ange mentions the same thing, economist with a, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, this is a, a massive crime uh, against Americans, and our founding fathers knew that it would be a very, very bad thing if the state could just have a complete monopoly on money and create money whenever they want without going through the inconvenience of taxing their people for something they wanted to pay for. So Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is the most American thing <clears throat> that we could possibly have once you understand the problem with gold and how gold inevitably leads to centralization. And uh, Bitcoin is, it's almost, I almost see a parallel with Second Amendment crowd, which I'm in that crowd, and Bitcoin, which is the come and take it mentality 
that's that's it's an inherently American value. So things are very tough in America right now. We life was certainly a lot better in America, I think, fifty plus years ago. You know, but um, I really, really want to see America adopt Bitcoin because it would be such a beautiful thing to have our country not go through this this epitome of a of of a collapse of an empire. And if you were to write on a list all of the ingredients that a collapsing empire would have, that is what America is currently experiencing right now. So we're in very interesting times because never before in history have we had something like this happen where we're basically on the downtrend of a, of a previously very large, powerful, prosperous country uh, usually you're just forced to deal with the inflation, but now we actually have an option to opt out of that inflation and go to a superior currency that is not ruled by the state. So we're in very unprecedented times, and this has really never happened before. It totally is. Hey, but talking about the military, I mean, is that a group of people that we can orange pill? Like, not we, like Coinbits, but Bitcoiners. Like, and do they need um, targeted orange pilling materials <laughs> uh like like are we doing a good enough job because there i feel like they're like you just said it's unprecedented there's this there's this shift away from there's this shift away from the assumption that war making by the united states is somehow a fulfillment of, of of patriotism um that's now like that that deal is sealed like that's that's done that's a political realignment that has happened um it started in 2015 it's complete um, and yet there are, st and so there's this very strong resurgence of, I would say like courage or uh, a willingness to speak out among people who are more libertarian minded or conservative minded. Um, and so there are these flourishing communities and media initiatives. Bitcoin is not really closely enough aligned with that for my taste. Like I would think that Bitcoin would be part of that whole narrative arc, that whole story. And it isn't. And I don't think it's because it couldn't be. It's just that we haven't, it hasn't happened yet. I'm wondering if you might bring that about. Yeah, well, first of all, I would prefer uh, veterans to buy Bitcoin coin bits. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't want them going to a platform where they can just buy Dogecoin on the same platform and then uh, keep their coins on the exchange. So, yeah, absolutely shameless in saying that. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a great question because I've I've tweeted a few times about this topic about how people in the military uh, or excuse me veterans who were in the military are such a ripe demographic for Bitcoin because you you get in the military you're super motivated you're super brainwashed you've watched all these movies and and you want to be badass right that's why a lot of people join and it's fine I, I don't think that's a bad thing to it's not a good thing to be propagandized and go kill strangers for your government uh they're they're not bad people right but uh the desire to protect other people i think is an inherent male quality and that is a good thing but they get in the military and they get most veterans i know are super hated and have like extremely minimal to no trust in the government anymore because you are lied to so uh damn much in the military and uh, it, it's just, it leaves a bad taste in a lot of uh, veterans' mouths, especially right now. You know, a lot of veterans, 
I would say most veterans just completely acknowledge that these uh, proxy wars over the last 20 years in the Middle East have done nothing good for really anybody other than central banks and, you know, corporations and stuff like that. But um, so that group is, is uh, great to Orange Pill because they, they naturally uh, trust the state less and they understand the problem of war. And so if you can just bridge that gap between, you know, not supporting these, these war efforts anymore and helping to basically the act of buying Bitcoin is indirectly leading the world toward peace because you're defunding the, the military industrial complex. So if you can make that switch happen, that's, that's a very good thing. And um, I think a lot of veterans would, would get on board. Plus another thing I mentioned too is, you know, in the military, you, you have communal suffering and, not in like a sadistic way, but you kind of enjoy that suffering in a way because it's so much uh, a part of your life and you're suffering with other people that you have strong connections with and you're all going through the same thing together and you have a common mission that you want to accomplish with these people. And that is something that brings people very close together. And you get out of the military and you're in the civilian world and you just totally feel like a, a fish out of water sometimes. You have, feel like you have no mission, no identity, no belonging, all that stuff. So I think that's another common trend why we see a lot of veterans in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a mission. Bitcoin is a very meaningful mission that can profoundly impact generations to come uh, and lead to a better world. And it's not easy. It's, there is communal suffering in Bitcoin. There is communal suffering in holding something and believing in the future of it. And then it drops 80% in value and everybody thinks you're nuts. And, you know, your mom and your aunt call you and ask if you're okay. <laughs> right? Like, there, there's, there's so many forms of suffering that come with hodling Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it's been said before, buying Bitcoin is easy, but hodling it, that's the hard part. And that brings Bitcoiners together as well. Um, so, yeah, a lot of commonalities there. And uh, I, think, I think finding these demographics are, are a good thing to do for Bitcoin adoption. Man, that was, that was awesome. I loved, I loved the parallel between, like, between Bitcoin plebs and, and people in the military. Do you think it's important? One thing that stuck out to me is you like highlighted the uh, the um, stuff with about money in the Constitution, which I think is really powerful. Do you think it's also important? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like if you're in the military, you're serving the Constitution, right? You're not serving like the military industrial complex. Do you think that's another important thing to highlight? <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Uh, first of all, is, is the Audio is still okay. I'm in a small room trying to be away from the crying baby. So still hear me fun? Oh, yeah. It's great. Okay. Yeah. So the ironic thing is you raise your right hand and you swear an oath to the Constitution to support and defend the Constitution, uh, you know, protect, basically protect the country from all enemies, domestic and foreign, foreign and domestic. Uh, but I would say that I would say probably 75% of people in the military, probably higher, don't even read the Constitution, which is 
absolutely nuts that that is not even required reading before you join the military. I don't know how it makes any sense that you swear an oath to something that you haven't even read. Uh, it's completely ridiculous. But um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting off track here. <laughs> what was the? No, no, you're you're good. It's like it's funny. It's like you you take that oath and then it's like okay. When, when are we marching on, on the Federal Reserve, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. If, if we actually had people in the military defending the Constitution, the uh, effort would not be foreign. Because, I mean, even Abraham Lincoln said the same thing. Abraham Lincoln said that uh, if America were to collapse, it would, would collapse internally. And that is exactly what's happening. It's not Russia. It's not China. Okay, it's uh, the Federal Reserve. Basically, that's what's happening. It's a private, private organization that uh, has no accountability whatsoever and makes life incredibly difficult for most people in the country. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I love hearing this perspective um, because, I mean, um, I have a bunch, I have, you know, have some friends in the military and, and would love to orange pill them. So it's, it's very helpful. Um, I'm wondering, you know, in a slightly different direction, you've been working in Bitcoin in a, on, you know, in a BD role, which is very active. You're talking with a lot of people, right? Um, has the narratives around like, like the FUDs that you've encountered, has that changed since you started? Is it, do you get different FUDs if you're doing like, you know, more international business? Like what's the, uh, what's your assessment of the, the FUD scene and, and how it's changed? Yeah, FUD scene. That's a really good one. We, on our podcast, we talk about that every single time we ask people, what are the most common points of FUD you hear? It's a really fun one to address because they're all so common. They're all like the same thing. So you can just read about how to address those points of FUD and then, and then address all of them very easily. Um, I would say the two biggest ones I see are the volatility and the environmental, quote, environmental impact uh, of Bitcoin. But there, I think time heals all wounds. And I've had people that I've spoken with about Bitcoin from three years ago reach out to me years later and ask about how to buy it. That's something that's definitely happened. Um, the tough thing is we, we learn about Bitcoin and we're so enthusiastic about it, but, uh, our enthusiasm can kind of be a bug and not a feature sometimes, <laughs> right? So the guy that can't, can't shut up about Bitcoin, you're probably going to turn a lot of people off eventually. Um, but getting back to the points of FUD, uh, yeah, those two are the most common volatility, I would say, and environmental impact. And as far as the environmental impact, you really cannot, I mean, this is something untenable at this point. You have ExxonMobil that's been mining Bitcoin, largest oil and gas producer in the United States. They've been mining Bitcoin uh, for the last two years. <laughs> and most people don't even know that. And why are they mining Bitcoin? Well, they're doing it because they are able to reduce their quote, emissions and uh, appease the, basically appease the state and all of the regulatory pressures that put they're, they're putting on. And the thing is, the, the, the environmental topic is such a debate, especially in the United States, 
even more than Europe, I think. And no matter which side of the aisle you are on, Bitcoin appeases both parties. If you think that the oceans aren't going to be boiled and we're all going to die because of climate change, you still have a ton of reasons to support Bitcoin. Uh, and if you do believe that's going to happen, then how could you not support Bitcoin? Because it's, it's literally helping huge corporations take energy that was being released into the atmosphere and, uh, and reduce that by a very large percentage. Um, so it's, it's very fascinating to see how Bitcoin unifies people on both sides of the aisle, not just on that topic, but really on any topic on, on the right and the left. Um, yeah, so that would be my answer for the FUD. Yeah, it's just incredible to see how, how much the industry has grown or how much industry has grown around Bitcoin um, in the past like 13 uh 13, 14 years um, in the sense, in a, in a way that like, I mean, I don't know if, if Satoshi predicted it, but I mean, you know, if you, had, if you had said like, okay, you release this protocol into the world and then 14 years later, ExxonMobil is going to be using it for um, emissions flaring, right? Like that's, that's crazy. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It absolutely is. It's also amazing uh, to understand that most people have no idea this is even happening. <laughs> we all live on Twitter. We all, we're all basically obsessed with this thing because we understand the importance, but the average person has no idea about 99% of any of this. So just things like that, you know, you, you just get a few sound bites, you get some things that are, are guaranteed to catch somebody's attention and you hear about something like that, like ExxonMobil has been mining Bitcoin for over two years. And it, it, for the average person, they're going to view Bitcoin as more, more legitimate. They're at least going to look into it more at some point. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to, to see. Basic human psychology, basic sales stuff is, is uh, human beings don't like being the only one doing something. We just don't. We like doing something when everybody else is doing it. So you see these big corporations buying Bitcoin. You see these wealthy individuals buying Bitcoin, and you're going to feel more inclined to buy it yourself. Um, so, yeah, that's why we made uh, theyownbitcoin.com, actually, just to show that, that third-party legitimacy. Can, can you say a little bit about that? I was just about to ask. Can you plug that a little bit and explain what it shows and how you collected the data? Um, and then also... Maybe can you talk, can you speak to how it's been used so far, and then how the concept of kind of groupthink can go even beyond that page? So, like, you know, taking that concept and and empowering everyone to do that work. I mean, it's one thing to just send them to that website, but is there anything, any way to scale that uh, that kind of campaign that that you've been mulling over? Yeah, so basically what it is, it's uh, theyownbitcoin.com, and we made the website a few months ago. I think we've gotten over 4,000 views on the page now, and the average time viewing the page is about six to seven minutes. And uh, yeah, so um, basically it, it's almost like I'm sure most people here know what Bitcoin Treasuries is, which is a fantastic website created by CoinKite. I love that website. It shows... Uh, list of corporations that have added Bitcoin to their balance sheet. 
but there wasn't a website that existed before that showed notable individuals who owned Bitcoin. And so we, we just made it, made the website and did a ton of research. We looked up politicians who own it. We looked up corporate executives who own it, athletes, celebrities. Um, and the list on there is, is pretty intriguing. Um, just off the top of my head, the CEO of Apple owns it. The co-founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak, owns it. Uh, the co-founder of LinkedIn, obviously Jack Dorsey, co-founder of, of Twitter, uh, president of PayPal, co-founder of PayPal, um, uh, CEO of Reddit. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but you see people on that list and it's like, wow, you know, this thing, it, it's been a very useful thing for people to send to other people who say that Bitcoin is a scam and it's a Ponzi scheme. You know what else I love about it, though, is so you just named a bunch of really smart people in business and finance, which is powerful, but there, that will resonate with certain people, right? But then you also have celebrities, people who just have like really high name recognition. They're, you know, people talk about them at the dinner table in their living rooms. They watch them on TV. They're like almost the fact that they're celebrities makes you feel like you know them personally. It's not just their resume that you're relating to when you say they own Bitcoin, but you're, you know, they're part of your extended family. They're part of your broader awareness of culture. And so that I thought was even not more powerful, but it just it's for a certain type of consumer that will resonate much, much more. And so then combining those, I thought was really smart. Yeah, for sure. Joe Rogan owns Bitcoin, <laughs> right? Like you get one guy like that, that a lot of millennials listen to and they know he now owns Bitcoin. They're probably going to buy Bitcoin, too. A lot of people like that. So that's why... Um, I think uh, it'd be very good for us to reach out to uh, respected influencers. So I, a few, I think it was last month or two months ago, I've been tagging Jocko Willink and trying to get him to talk to Shane Hazel. I don't know if you guys know who Shane Hazel is. He, he was also a recon Marine, uh, the job that I had. And he's a very badass guy. You know, he's a combat veteran. Uh, he ran for governor of Georgia under the Libertarian Party. Um, and would just be the perfect guy to get Jocko willing to buy Bitcoin. We didn't hear anything back, but, um, anyways, we're, we're working on it, but figures like that, there are just a few select people where if they just went out tomorrow and said, yep, I bought Bitcoin, uh, I believe it has value. I'm going to continue buying it. That's very substantial for adoption. It's huge. It's people huge. You know, it's so funny. You were just saying, we're talking about like, oh, how are we going to reach the military? Two words, Jocko Willing. Jocko, if you're listening, if you're in the United States, we'll set you up, reach out coinbits.app. Um, but absolutely, there's like, I think you've just absolutely nailed, nailed, uh, nailed it on the head. It's, we have to, it, it's like these different communities, you identify them as proto-Bitcoiners, as pre-coiners, who are sharing a lot of these values, these anxieties, these hopes and and aspirations, but also, uh, you know, the, the kinds of people who are just there's they're processing the information that comes across the news and the culture, and they don't understand really what's happening. They need to understand that the, it all comes down to the money, and then, but but that's not good enough. It's not just the educational materials that need to be messaged right, but they need to be they come in the right hands. And they need to be presented by people who have 
a reputation that they can stand behind so that Bitcoin is is standing behind this reputation. I mean, even you're men- you're mentioning ExxonMobil. That's the that's another perfect example. You know, here's a like what what more recognizable the corporation could you possibly have? It's they've been in and out of the news for decades. It's just as recognizable to boomers, probably more so than than to Gen Zers. And so to attach Bitcoin to that to that name is extremely powerful. And so there is this element of marketing Bitcoin and driving adoption that really just has to do with identifying the right name to attach the word Bitcoin to for their reputation. Yep, totally agree. And I, ideally, people would be buying Bitcoin because they want to live in a more free world and they understand that the state shouldn't have a monopoly on money and all these things that we all generally agree upon. But uh, the reality is that's that's oftentimes not why people are going to be buying Bitcoin. They're going to be buying it because they they saw somebody else they respect buying it and they believe it's a good investment. And uh, that's fine. That's a good place to start because there are a lot of people that that uh, well. One one phrase I say is the orange pill leads to the red pill, and I think it's so true because once you understand that money, something that is that everybody wants something work, people work so hard for once you understand that the money is is inherently corrupt and and a scam and i i try and use that word lightly when i say the word scam but it truly like the us dollar is a scam it, you you're working your ass off for something other people can create for free that is insane and um Anyways, once you realize that that system is inherently flawed, money, which is more, which is just as common among human beings as food and water, and you know it's money. Once you understand that is flawed, then you're going to start asking a lot more questions uh, about the world around you. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how Bitcoin affects people. Yeah, definitely. Oh, go ahead, Dave. No, no, David, go ahead. Go ahead. I've been talking about. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to say, speaking of, uh, speaking of questioning the world around you, um, what do you make of all of the presidential candidates in the U.S., including Bitcoin, in their, like, planks? I mean, pretty much everybody besides Trump and Biden uh, have all of the – most of the major candidates have discussed it or at least, like, slammed CBDCs and then said, like, oh, well, Bitcoin's cool too. And I mean, like – RFK Jr. is has come out with a Bitcoin like like policy position on his campaign website, which is huge. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? And like any other kind of news cycle developments in that are going on in the the Bitcoin space? Yeah, I think it's awesome. I think it's it's basically something Max Kaiser has been talking about for a decade, and it's coming to fruition. Which you know you can think you can call Max Kaiser a crazy lunatic, but you know the man the man even if he is a crazy lunatic, he's been pretty spot on for the last ten years at least. So uh, yeah, it's um it's it's great to see it's great to see. I, I personally have been a huge fan of RFK Jr. for a long time. I really I really support his efforts at Children's Health Defense and what he's been doing to have medical freedom for this insanity that we've seen the last few years. Um, and it's, it's, uh, 
it's not a surprise to me, but it's tremendous to see that you can even just donate Bitcoin on his website right there. You've got, I don't know, the options like Visa, PayPal, and then Bitcoin. <laughs> it's right there. So it's so cool, right? Uh, who are the other ones? Andrew Yang, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. I, I don't, not personally, not, you know, big supporters of them, but they're, they're supporting Bitcoin. So that's cool. We're at least on team Bitcoin. Um, it's only going to become more of a political issue because it's, it's too important to ignore, right? It's, it's, it's just, it's simply too profound of a technology to just not say anything about at a certain point. And if you do continue ignoring it or bashing it, you're going to have, Bitcoiners become likely become more and more wealthy over time because governments have never historically stopped devaluing their currencies. So Bitcoin is basically a bet on the fact that the past is going to repeat itself and states are going to continue devaluing their currencies. That's pretty much what's going on. And that will continue to, to happen. And uh, if, if they're not being treated the way they want to be treated, Bitcoiners are going to move to another jurisdiction that treats them better. It's it's uh, common sense. It's game theory. We're seeing that right now with El Salvador and politicians. They are people too. the Federal Reserve. This is a different story because they they're right at the tippy top. They have they have strong incentives to maintain their power of monopoly on money. But you talk about politicians, especially local politicians and even up to senators and congressmen and people like that, they, they want people moving to their jurisdictions. They want increases in jobs. They want higher tax revenues. They don't want to tax everybody out of their jurisdiction, right? But you want to have people in your area being productive. Uh, and that's what Bitcoin provides. So it makes perfect political sense that they would embrace Bitcoin. That's actually something Dennis Porter talked about is when um, one analogy Dennis Porter uses, and I, I, you know, I'm not like a big marijuana guy, but like when he was using, he, he uses the example of the way marijuana was was uh, decriminalized, was made legal in so many states. It wasn't on the basis of, oh, well, you know, the government shouldn't tell you what you can put in your own body or anything like that. It was on the basis of uh, this is going to create jobs. This is going to drive uh, likely higher tax revenue in your jurisdiction. This is inherently did for you as an elected official. And so he's taking that strategy and using it in the same way towards Bitcoin. And I think it's great what that man is doing, uh, really support the guy and uh, politicians have incentives. So it's, it's just, it's just hilarious to see people like Ted Cruz smash buying Bitcoin every time he gets paid. It's funny. Hey, yellow. What's up, guys? What up? What up? Uh, question for Andrew, if I can. Yeah, you can. So, there's a lot of talk lately about regulations. Uh, we saw what's happened around uh, SEC uh, suing uh, Coinbase and uh, Binance. Uh, what are your thoughts about them coming uh, for Bitcoin? How they could do that? and what form that is going to have if that happens. And also, is it a smart play to uh, trust those politicians we just mentioned and or just ignore? Like, do we have to play a kind of guerrilla kind of war uh, through those guys? 
uh, with the politicians and the regulations coming or what? I don't what think you, we have to. Right. Yep. I don't think we have to right now. Right now, it seems to be pretty clear if you're not involved in the shitcoin business. Uh, Jerry Densler, uh, he's a big fan of Bitcoin. He's said, he's literally publicly stated that Bitcoin is the only, quote, cryptocurrency that he feels comfortable labeling as a commodity. <laughs> so it makes me bullish on Bitcoin companies, makes me bearish on companies that have been selling unregistered securities. And, uh, you know, as a libertarian, I, I'm not the kind of person to come out and say, I want the government to regulate everything and control everything. Okay, like I get that, and that's what a lot of Ethereans have been labeling Bitcoiners as. But at the same time, you know, if, if these cryptocurrencies are going to come out and they've got all of the ingredients of what uh, basically a you know a company would have that's raising capital, then why are you calling yourself decentralized? So I see hypocrisy there, and I'm going to call that hypocrisy out. <laughs> um, I don't think Bitcoin is going to be banned in the United States. I, I really do not believe that. I think you're going to see idiots like Elizabeth Warren talk about how it's bad for the environment and you know criminals are using it and all that. But uh, I think it's simply, it's too solidified at this point. You have, like I mentioned, you got people like Ted Cruz smash buying sats on his phone. <laughs> okay? Like, Bitcoin is past the point where they should make this illegal. I, I think people need to understand that. That's what I personally strongly believe and um and historically you know the united states has been a huge huge tech hub of the world we've been taking people from other countries and bringing them here who are who are tech innovators and the the internet was basically born in the united states we've got all these big tech companies in the united states and uh i think it's only logical for that trend to continue and for bitcoin to be uh, adopted so I think it's a good thing. Maybe we're lucky as Bitcoiners that Gary Gensler has made that comment about Bitcoin being a commodity and basically everything else being a security. But I think under the definition of the Howey test, then all these things are indeed securities. And if you're going to live in a world where we have laws and regulations and all that stuff, then okay, it makes sense that these things are going to be labeled as securities. So that's my thought. Ted Cruz has terrible, uh, uh, is it OPSEC, by the way? He's like saying, like, I have two Bitcoin and I'm going to buy more. It's like, I mean, maybe he has to, maybe he has to, I mean, I'm pretty sure he has to let the, you know, senators have to disclose their investments. But anyway, uh, we got somebody from the audience. Frank, I would love to give you the stage. Hello, hello. Hey, we lost him. He, I think he, we tried to give Frank a, a speaker. He speaker dropped race. that. Oh, dropped interesting. That. Yeah. I see we have BJJ in the chat, though, so that's cool. Another Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy here. Oh, yeah. Here Andrew, do you, do you mind? Okay. Ju, do you mind jiu-jitsu pilling us, like, right now? I would, I would love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm 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 always trying to jujitsu build people. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love it. I I think uh, I don't know. I, it keeps me sane. Jujitsu, I do it like six days a week, a few hours a day. Um, jujitsu and Bitcoin. Alex McShane talks about this a lot, actually. Uh, a friend of mine uh, from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm sure all you know who 
Alex Machane is, but he's been in jujitsu as well. But uh, yeah, jujitsu and Bitcoin are both proof of work based, and uh, you know, jujitsu uh, became popular because I'll, I'll just give the quick couple minute background on jujitsu why it became so popular. So you have Japanese jujitsu, right? Very old martial art, and this one Japanese dude moved to Brazil, and. Uh, He's black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu, and this Brazilian family named the Gracie family did him a financial favor. They helped him out financially, and in return for that favor, this Japanese guy taught this family, uh, again, the Gracie family, taught them jiu-jitsu. Now, there was a very small uh, guy in that family. He was like five brothers that were learning jiu-jitsu. The smallest brother, his name was Elio Gracie, all right? Very small guy, and he couldn't do these techniques and moves that uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu taught. He just didn't do them because he wasn't strong enough. So he, he, he literally took Japanese jiu-jitsu and modified it to where a smaller opponent could crush a bigger opponent. And that is how we have Brazilian jiu-jitsu today. And how is it proof of work based? Well, so you looked at the early UFC, which started in, I think, 1996. And the whole goal of the UFC at that time was to determine what were the most effective martial arts. Okay, so they had karate guys, Muay Thai guys, wrestlers, boxers, you know, all I, all different kinds of martial artists go in there and see which martial art was the most effective. And what happened was uh, the Gracie family that I was talking about earlier, they sent in a man named Hoist Gracie. And Hoist Gracie, they intentionally chose him because he was not intimidating uh, he was a, not a big guy. He's like 175, 170 maybe. Uh, not a stereolytic guy. So he goes in there. He's wearing his gimono, you know, his, his D's, typical martial arts uniform. And he's going against these big buff dudes. And he's just destroying them all. And he's, not, he's barely even throwing punches. He's, he's just putting them on the ground, turning them around, choking them out, you know, doing, doing submissions on them. And uh, it, it just shocked the world because you'd see these huge buff guys fight Hoist Gracie and Hoist Gracie would just demolish them without barely even throwing a punch. And uh, so anyways, that's, that's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in a nutshell. It's like human chess. It's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's like the proof of work story behind Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow, that's awesome. Um, Frank, I see, has joined as a speaker. The floor is yours. Yeah, thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Uh, Andrew, you got a question for you. I guess you were speaking in another space that you're currently based in Mexico, I believe. Just wanted to have your thoughts on how um, adoption is, uh, well, beacon adoption is happening over there, and, and if there are also a lot of uh, uh, expats uh, moving to the country. Because that will be also something else that uh, we will have to consider here after all this uh, kind of like wreckage that's happening with the SEC regulation thing going on. Most of these companies, I believe, will kind of like, uh, move offshore to some other jurisdictions where they don't get that many, uh, I guess, restraints or kind of things. So I just wanted to have your thoughts on that uh, since I guess that you are currently based there. Just wanted to know. Yeah. Uh, so the town I'm currently in, it's called a small town called San Miguel de Allende. And it's a very popular 
uh, town for expats. We've got about, I think, 15,000 expats based from the U.S. and Europe and Canada. Um, and this place is, we're making this place a Bitcoin hub. Um, we've got, I think, 15 businesses that accept it now. There's another company. Uh, I think the Twitter handle is something like Bitcoin Hubs IO or Bitcoin Hubs, something like that. But um, yeah, we're, me and Bitcoin Hubs and other people, we're going around to businesses and getting people to accept this thing. And um, Mexico really doesn't have like, there's no El Zante, there's no Bitcoin Beach of Mexico yet. So it's a really exciting uh, venture to try and make one place in Mexico a very recognizable Bitcoin hub. And I think that's going to happen in San Miguel. I'm pretty bullish on it, um, especially given the fact that there's so much tourism here and it, it's a very safe place to live. But, uh, yeah, Mexico is a good place. It's, it's close to the United States, and that's why a lot of Americans move down here. It's, uh, you know, kind of somewhat close to Canada, too. Um, but, uh, you know, the country's got its problems, too. It's, it's definitely... There are some areas that are safer than the United States, and there are some areas where you never want to go at all. <laughs> so I would love to see, like, a Bucelli-type person come in here and just clean up the entire country. And it's fascinating, too, because Mexico has... Uh, it's one of the most productive countries on Earth. It's It's got... I don't know what number it has in, in worldwide GDP, but it's it's pretty up there. And you have that metric combined with the fact that you still have the, uh, you know, cartel here. That's pretty amazing to have a country that's that's under that kind of situation, but still being very productive. So if it was just El Salvador Butelied and made safer, I think it would be a very good thing. Plus the fact that you have Ricardo Salinas here, who's the second richest man in all of Mexico, um, hardcore Bitcoiner. He's always he's always tweeting about Bitcoin. It's pretty funny to see. But uh, that guy's really into Bitcoin. He's owned uh, he he owns a lot of different companies. He owns an internet company called Total Play. Mexicans can can pay their their internet with Bitcoin. He owns a department store called Electra. You can pay with Bitcoin there. He also owns a bank called Banco Azteca. And because of regulatory reasons, you can't do any Bitcoin stuff there right now, but I know he's working on it. So, and, uh, and yeah, like I mentioned, you know, people, people here experience hyperinflation in the nineties. So they, and they naturally have kind of a distrust towards government money and, and the state. And so I think Mexico could be a very good place to, to be as time goes by. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, just wanted to also thank you for what you're doing there and basically uh, teaching some martial arts skills because I guess that's also something else for us to truly become uh, really sovereign individuals, you know, because at the end of the day, we uh, never know uh, what's going to happen, especially in uh, these kind of countries where, you know, it can be uh, relatively peaceful, but sometimes uh, kind of crazy shit can happen and you better <laughs> get prepared for what's coming and the same thing with our financial here and many other things, but uh, that's a great starting point. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So I think uh, I think we're probably probably going to wrap in the next few minutes. But just to give an overview, we've been talking with Andrew Howard uh, from Bitcoin Reserve about lots of things. Uh, you know how how you got into Bitcoin, your experience in as a Marine. You know operating a also you know working for an international Bitcoin company, FUD presidential candidates, the Fed. I mean, we've talked about so many things over the past hour and a half. Uh, Andrew, if you wanted to give uh, kind of some some final thoughts, thoughts about Bitcoin Reserve, things you're most excited about in the future, just anything anything else as as we kind of wrap up here on this beautiful, kind of, kind of beautiful Friday. I'm actually, I'm still in... Um, I'm in Arlington, Virginia, and the the sky is still like uh, like smoky or whatever from the that like um, fire in Canada. So it's it's like sunny, but the air's bad. But anyway, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. Sorry to hear that. I got family in Virginia, but uh, it's a good state. Um, yeah, it's it's really easy to get black pilled today. And you open up Twitter and you see so much violence and just depressing stuff. But uh, we're doing good things. And I, I am so happy Bitcoin exists because it, it does give us a mission and it does make people's lives better. And just purely off of the game theory, it's very likely that this will succeed. And I've got my bets on it, the fact that it, it's going to succeed. I, I don't own anything else. I'm, I'm, you know, my, I've got Bitcoin and enough fiat currency to survive basically. And, uh, you know, there's some apocalyptic situation. I've, you know, got like physical goods here that I can trade and survive with. But, uh, anyways, I, um, man, you know, I really, I really appreciate almost all Bitcoiners. I've been to tons of conferences of the last three years, and I there's just something going on here. I just have some kind of feeling where what we're doing is not futile, and something's going to happen here. And I think a lot of us have that feeling. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate what you guys are doing at CoinBits. I'm I'm always, you know, anytime somebody I know from the U.S. wants to buy Bitcoin, I'm sending them to you guys. I really Really liked what you guys are about. I like that you're, you know, a family started business and um, you've been around since I think 2017 and you're Bitcoin only and you emphasize self custody. So, yeah, big fan of CoinBits and really, uh, you know, if you're outside of the US, try out Bitcoin Reserve. Uh, we, we do the absolute best we can to keep our principles. You know, we haven't offered shit coins and like I said, we don't even give people the option to keep their coins with us. So um, I, I guess, yeah, those are my final thoughts. I really appreciate you guys having me on the space and DMs are open if anybody wants to talk. Thank you, Andrew. We will absolutely be sending anyone your way who comes our way um, and, and needs Bitcoin who's not uh, in the United States, who's a retail customer. You guys have an awesome product website and you know just the, the projects that you do and the way that you talk about bitcoin it's really inspirational and it really you know i i'm not the kind of person that thinks i need more conviction for bitcoin but listening to you has been an absolute pleasure and it just just again like 
I love hearing that other people are convicted. It just makes me so energetic and excited to like go out and do this thing. Um, so we really appreciate you, man. And um, all, all the service that you've done for our country and that you're continuing to do by um, educating people about Bitcoin as freedom money and, um, and helping them obtain it and obtaining that sovereignty over their lives. It's incredibly important work. So just thank you. Thank you very much. 100%. Thanks, Dave. All right, guys, we're going to close this out. Let me just explain a little bit more about CoinBits before you all go. Um, CoinBits, if you don't know us, uh, follow us. Follow our Twitter account. Um, we get into uh, discussions online about Bitcoin, and maybe we help you think of new ways of framing Bitcoin and communicating about Bitcoin so that you can take that and bring that to the dinner table or bring that to soccer practice with your kids or talk to your faith-based communities about Bitcoin. Um, we really need all of you, everybody in this movement, um, to you know really hone the message and have those raw materials ready so that um, when it's time to have those conversations, you, you're well-informed and you have material to fall back on. We provide a lot of that. We try to. Um, we have just released a paper, a white paper called Bitcoin Foundations, and that's about 30 pages long. It's very graphical, though. It's kind of like a um, uh, like a fun magazine to read and it really just covers all the basics it starts with educating at a very high level what money is how it's evolved over the years and why bitcoin was specifically designed to be money and to be the best form of money ever invented it also dispels fud um you know it doesn't go, go hit hit too hard on that front it just goes through kind of the most basic 10 um, objections that we have found people have, and it just gives you a nice little bite-sized rebuttal for each one. And then it goes through why number go up, how to become a Bitcoiner, how to think about, you know, inverting your understanding of money so that you really use Bitcoin as your base layer for value measurement. And you say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin and everything else is sort of devaluing against it as opposed to Bitcoin, quote unquote, going up. Um, and so that whole transformation that that kind of we went through we tried to capture that in this document so that you could use it um, so you can go on coinbits.app slash research slash bitcoin foundations or just go to our research page you'll find it right there um, download it share it wide widely please uh, we just need this information out there if you are looking to obtain bitcoin in the united states we really hope that you join us um, we are a Bitcoin neobank. We can give you some insight about your spending and how much uh, kind of uh, discretionary spending you're doing and how to sweep that into Bitcoin and save for your future more effectively. All that's available to you. Um, we have a really fast sign up process. You can get going in less than 10 minutes. You can link your credit cards, your bank accounts, and you can get going with Bitcoin. Over time, you're not going to be able, you're not going to need to um, use your traditional bank. Um, we are rolling out features at an incredibly fast clip, and hopefully, over the next months, a uh, few months, you're going to be able to finally settle into CoinBits permanently and really not have to go back outside. So we're really excited for that. Um, we really hope you'll join us. Um, open a retirement account with us. Open an account for obtaining Bitcoin, uh, save for your future. And um, we do this every week on Friday. We always bring an interesting thought leader in on Fridays. So um, we will see you next week. And uh, until then, happy stacking. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless.
and we'll talk to you all later. Bye, everyone. Cheers, gents. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Bitcoin Roundup podcast presented by Coinbits. So what do you think of the conversation? Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Coinbits app. And be sure to subscribe to be notified of our next episode release. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Bitcoin Roundup podcast.